The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. We had the lovely jamboree in the desert, didn't we? Not a lot of COP27. This world is sleepwalking into food shortages if we're not careful. Who advises these people, Alison? We give them this genius for free. It's a green fairy tale and I think it's increasingly a poisonous one. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the COP27 summit in Egypt, co-pilot. A pyramid of inverted piffle, see what I did there? (laughs) Or an oasis of clear thinking in a desert of climate change denial. Rishi Sunak decided, along with countless other world leaders, to get on a plane, travelling to an exclusive Egyptian beach resort to declare the UK faces both a moral responsibility and an economic necessity to tackle climate change. Despite a deteriorating global economy, said Sunak, countries such as Britain must fulfil their financial commitments to help developing nations decarbonise. Some may question such a message, given that next week's autumn statement is set to impose a slew of domestic tax rises on hard-pressed firms and households, along with deep public sector spending cuts. As we move towards renewable energy, Alison, which we're endlessly told is cheaper, Energy prices faced by firms and households continue to soar. How does that work? And perhaps most depressingly of all, co-pilot, your favourite parliamentarian, Sir Gavin Williamson, for it is he. He's now out of office again. Surely some mistake. Surely there's a conspiracy, Alison, across the highest echelons of government against ex-fireplace salesmen that people need to know. But meanwhile, Sir Gavin will no doubt be comforted. How can he not be? by your most heartfelt words of support. (laughs) How many times have I got to tell you on Planet Normal, the words Gavin Williamson are never prefaced by the word sir, okay? (laughs) One of the great unaccountable errors of the modern political age, really. Are we going to really go in on him? It was a fire-breathing column, though, wasn't it? It was a (laughs) fire-breathing column. The link in the show notes to this episode. The little Welsh dragon, Idris the dragon, came out. I tell you what, I wouldn't want to get on your wrong side. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> so from the sublime to the ridiculous. No, I want you to tell me what about the dung beetle, Gavin Williamson? What did I write with which you disagreed? Excuse me. <laughs> Are you really asking me that question? Yes, I am. You always say to me, Politics is a contact sport. You worked in the lobby. I'm just a kind of naive girl up from Wales. I find these people absolutely despicable. I mean, he allegedly, he is a bully. Allegedly, he told a senior civil servant in the Ministry of Defence to slit your throat and jump out of the window. Of course, Gavin Williamson, he denies wrongdoing. But I think it's pretty clear at Prime Minister's Questions, and we're recording just after Prime Minister's Questions, aren't we, on Wednesday Mm. afternoon, had... Sir Gavin Williamson not stepped down, not resigned, then the onslaught from Keir Starmer would have been even more damaging for Sunak. Even with the resignation, Starmer went in on that issue. With everything else going on, cost of living crisis, Mm. possible reparations being paid by Western countries, soaring energy bills despite renewables being cheaper, we're told, they decided, the Labour Party strategists, that this was something they needed 
to go in on. This is something, a scab that they needed to pick. And I do think it reflects badly on Rishi Sunak. I do that he appointed him and he said, weasel words, the Prime Minister, I had no specific knowledge of the allegations against him, Mm. specific doing a lot of work in that sentence. Mm. These are still allegations, of course, and we have to keep that in mind. But I think if there was any way that Gavin Williamson's what he said would be disproved. And we could see the WhatsApp messages, of course, which were pretty fruity, to say the least, even by political standards. Sunak must have seen those before he appointed him. He must have seen them. He was deeply peeved that he hadn't got a seat at the Queen's funeral and was sending these belligerent, entitled texts to, I think it's the chief whip, Wendy Morton, saying, well, you know, there's a price for everything. I mean, I think when he was appointed to the Cabinet... I just automatically, you see, they gave him this Minister of State without portfolio, didn't they? Because every Mm. job he's been given. My my objection to him, Liam, is not just that he's quite a nasty piece of work, it's that he's useless. I mean, it's it's an absolute double whammy. He lost the job as Secretary of State for Defence because there was sort of question marks over leaks, weren't there? Then he was Education Secretary under COVID when British schools were kept closed longer than almost any other schools in the world. And he managed to make a complete fiasco of the exams that the poor kids had to take. Yet he keeps bouncing back. And I do think that he has all the dirt on them, doesn't he? And he was given that seat at the cabinet table, not trusted to be given a proper job, but too feared not to be given a job. And, you know, are those the standards we want in our increasingly deteriorating public life? I did in my column, actually, I thought this was very interesting. So Mel Stride, who is the Work and Pension Secretary, was invited to defend Williamson And he said, I think Gavin is somebody who has a particular talent and particular understanding of the Parliamentary Party. And I can see, therefore, why, given that it's going to be very important that we have a cohesive party going forward, he has a seat at the cabinet table. Now, how does that translate, co-pilot? It's all euphemisms for arm twisting and nastiness. And we we are news and views beyond the bubble and we shouldn't focus on this Westminster process. But I do think this is damaging for Rishi Sunak so early into his stint in number 10. And as Keir Starmer spoke from the dispatch box, he did sound pretty compelling on this stuff. And I do think his words will resonate and do damage to our incoming prime minister. We're not allowed to name names because presumably there's some super injunction. But there is a former Labour spin doctor who has disappeared from the scene, Liam. And I don't think we're allowed to mention him at all. But no doubt the other side as well is perfectly capable of throwing up these wrong Not only was I fulminating this week about Gavin without the sir, <laughs> we had the lovely jamboree in the desert, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of COP27. <laughs> Do you want me to say to you, 24,000 diplomats, 13,000 observers, all of them deeply worried about our carbon footprint, yeah. flying in on planes, including over 400 private jets. You know what Rishi should have done? And you <laughs> glanced at this in some of your writing. It would have been absolute genius, I think, to announce, having said I wouldn't be going to COP, right? He should have said, I'm not going to COP. 
But the reason is because I don't want to get on the plane. So I'm going to attend by Zoom. Yes. Right. And surely everyone else should be attending by Zoom. Exactly. It would have been absolutely brilliant. It would have made Boris Johnson look as if he was on some kind of junket in the desert. It would have appealed to the sort of middle class working from home people who want to sort of institutionalise the idea of everything's got to be on Zoom. And it would also have justified in the eyes of many who think he should be at cop by right that his reasons for suggesting early that he wasn't going to go. He could have said, oh, I've decided to attend by Zoom. My people were just checking if that would have been okay with other leaders and if I could beam into these meetings. And no one could have said boo to a goose and he would have looked absolutely brilliant and he wouldn't have had to have gone. (laughs) I mean, who advises these people, Alison? I know. We we give them this genius for free. I know. We heard a rumour that you were going to become his uh, Alistair Campbell. What a difference that would have made. I don't know who he's got in there doing this. I absolutely think that moving to a greener, cleaner, renewables future is a very good idea. I think the idea of doing it by 2050 is absolutely lunatic. I think it will mean mass poverty. It will mean trillions of pounds we don't have. But just as an exemplar, Liam, I'm sure you see this. The sponsor of COP27 was Coca-Cola, manufacturer of 120 billion plastic bottles every single year. You can't even satirise this stuff, really. So not only did we have hypocrisy as the sort of defining quality of this bazaar of balderdash, as Rishi Sunak suddenly appearing to commit the UK to something called climate reparations. They've stopped sort of trying to scare the life out of us. And now we've got this fantastic scam whereby developing countries can basically present Western nations with something called a a loss and damage proposal claim. (laughs) Basically, we are on the hook for billions of pounds because we invented factories. It just shows you how quickly the political climate, so to speak, has changed. Think back to that astonishing Olympic opening ceremony in London 2012, put together by Danny Ball, an incredible team. I mean, I, I watched that the other day on YouTube and it was I was actually really moved by it, that this is our country. And I was also quite amused that that the Brits had to get an Irishman like Danny Ball to actually you know, put, to, put together a, a, an artistic extravaganza. No, but joke, joking aside, it was a celebration of pretty much all the nations of the British Isles, including the Republic of Ireland. I know many, many Irish people who also thought it was a, a wonderful thing. And But the point is that at the heart of it, it started with our industrial revolution. You know, there's incredible... It did. I remember that, yes. Isambard Kingdom, Brunel, and all those people in their stovepipe hats with their big moustaches and chimneys coming out of the ground and so on. Back then, yes, of course, we knew about climate change. And yes, of course, we were moving towards renewables. And yes, of course, as you rightly say, we need to do that. But there was a bit of sanity about it. There was less stark primary colours about this debate. People understood nuance. People understood that, of course, the Industrial Revolution revolutionised life across the world, massively increasing longevity, massive leaps in medicine, the ability of people to work and own their own property. Of course, it was brutal. Of course, it was. But it is the basis of so much of modern life a life on earth now where despite all the doom and gloom, we've never been so lucky to be alive in terms of living standards. These kind of industrial capitalist processes over recent years have lifted 
hundreds of millions, billions of people out of poverty, of course, across the, de the developing world. I mean, and where does this end? Where does this reparations culture end? It just encourages sustained institutionalized victimhood among all kinds of countries across the world. Countries who in many cases are growing fast and their people are getting more chances. Of course, there's inequality, but inequality between countries, Alison, is actually diminishing very, very quickly as the post-communist world, as the developing world is rapidly catching up with the West. It's inequality within countries, particularly Western countries, that's growing. And the idea that particularly at such a time when the world is so cash-strapped after a COVID lockdown, mm. our leaders should be putting us on the hook, which Rishi Sunak got pretty close to, I must say, he sort of backtracked a little bit, with opposition leaders saying we need to pay tens of billions of pounds now when we're facing massive tax rises and spending cuts to public services, when a very high proportion of the British population, what is it, 7 million now, are on a hospital waiting list? It's just so politically tin-eared. And again, it illustrates to me the extent to which the political discourse, as filtered through mainstream broadcasters, is geared towards you know a few posh postcodes in southwest London rather than the country as a whole. This is going to go down like a lead balloon in the red wall. What's Rishi Sinek thinking? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. In fact, our Planet Normal inbox is absolutely bursting with fulmination. You're right, Liam, and, you know, at a time when m millions of people are worrying how to manage their daily existence, is our government seriously mad enough to ask the British people to divert their taxes away from crumbling public services to environmental reparations for countries like Somalia and Pakistan. There's a very funny guy on Twitter, actually, who's got the handle Burnside, and, and he just posted Scandinavian tax rates with Eritrean levels of public service. I mean, I, really, that is actually where we are. And I said in the column, I wrote a big column about COP27, and I said that Rick and Katie in Darlington struggling to feed and clothe their three children after paying the gas bill will undoubtedly be cheered by the thought that they are helping to fund Nairobi's railway city and hydropower project. I mean, you just can't make this thing up. And Rishi Sunak, I think this is a huge mistake for him, actually. Uh, if the reaction, the blowback we've had today from Telegraph readers, for many, Liam, they're so close to the edge of it being a final straw. He said, this is the right thing to do. It, it so isn't the right thing to do. Giving in to specious, emotional blackmail from developing nations, claiming to be developing nations, somewhere like Pakistan, which has Lahore, one of the most polluted cities on the planet. That's nothing to do with the United Kingdom. But when your countrymen, as you say, are facing enormous hardship, it's not just wrong. It, to me, it feels immoral. And what I did in the column, Liam, you'll have seen, is I wrote a sort of open letter from Britain to Pakistan saying that we're hearing, they're claiming that the recent terrible floods in Pakistan are the fault of countries like the UK because of the historic carbon emissions but on the contrary, a lot of experts have suggested that the reason Pakistan has these terrible floods is they've cut down all of their trees, the highest rate of deforestation in the world. Mm. 1947, when Pakistan was created, 33% of the total land mass 
was forest and now that's gone down to only 5%. So when it rains, the rain runs straight off the mountains into the silted up reservoirs, which then overflow. Pakistan has had many, many terrible floods. In the UK, by the way, Pakistan is already one of the UK's biggest recipients of aid in 2019-20. We gave Pakistan, actually we borrowed to give Pakistan. Let's be clear about this, Liam. We borrowed, we got in debt to give Pakistan around £302 million. And I think most normal Britons would consider that quite a generous gift to a nation which has its own nuclear weapons and a space program. And I think just just final thought here about COP27. One of the huge issues for many of these countries now claiming climate reparations from us is population. So Pakistan population is now 225 million. That's up from 65 million in 1970. And that's going to add enormous pressure to the environment. And I thought watching all the COP27 hellfire sermons, they'd be doing a hell of a lot more good if they were talking about practical things like contraception and population control. And also economic progress. You know, this whole debate around aid is an interesting one. It needs a much, much bigger airing. I'm a huge advocate of emergency aid and and relief in terms of natural disasters and so on. And I think the UK has got a pretty honourable record in that area. We've developed NGOs over the years who give a tremendous amount of assistance on the ground. Organisations like Oxfam, the French have developed Médecins Sans Frontières. In genuine emergency situations, I think richer nations should, of course, dig into their pockets and to help their fellow human beings. But a lot of aid, actually, beyond that, it's like an industry. And, I mean, let's just say billions of dollars flowed from one country to another country. Who's going to administer that? I mean, think of the the possibility for, let's say, misallocation. I should mention, actually, sometimes we shout out authors, don't we, here on Planet Normal. There's a very, very interesting Zambian economist I know called Dambisa Moyo. She's now in, in in the House of Lords. She's in her mid 50s. She wrote a really good book back in 2009 called Dead Aid, stressing how aid industry can actually hold back developing countries in their search for progress. This is separate from emergency relief, natural disasters, and and all the rest of it. It's a really, really interesting book by extremely experienced Zambian economist who speaks with huge moral authority. Just before we move on from COP27, I wanted to say that I did an interview with Lord David Frost on GB News, and you can get the full-length version of it on my other podcast. We discussed not just the fact that net zero 2050 is, in his words, unlikely and unrealistic. Let's be clear. David Frost, he accepts that climate change is real and he accepts that it's partly to do with the activities of human beings. But he doesn't accept that there's some immediate climate crisis. And what he wants to do is to use technology, the market mechanism and some subsidy to move towards a world beyond fossil fuels without putting huge burdens on ordinary households and firms and, and slowing down growth, which will make everyone poorer. And, you know, that's a very, very honourable argument, I would say. 
And we talked a lot about electric vehicles. I personally think, and I think David Frost has some sympathy for this view, I think electric vehicles are a blind alley because electric vehicles, you need huge amounts of copper, huge amounts of rare earths, substances like lithium, which are found in places like the Central African Republic, China, parts of the world that are geopolitically very, very tricky for the UK to consistently access. So we're weaning ourselves off fossil fuels for geostrategic and environmental reasons, just to make ourselves dependent on difficult parts of the world again. And of course, a lot of the electricity could continue to be generated using fossil fuels. I mean, I've always been an advocate of of hydrogen, but what David Frost said, and rightly so, is that the government shouldn't be backing winners. The government should be creating a level playing field where the market and technology can work out what is the best method to replace fossil fuels. It will obviously be a mixed bag. Renewables are already up to 40% of the electricity we use every day here in the UK. And we keep getting told, but renewables are much cheaper, renewables are much cheaper. So if that's the case, no one's been able to tell me why it is that the market for electricity in the UK is still dictated the price per unit by the price of gas, given that gas only accounts for 40% of our electricity. It seems rigged to me. It seems as if a lot of renewable companies are generating electricity more cheaply, but still being able to charge to punters prices that are dictated by more expensive gas. If anybody listening wants to explain to me what I've got wrong here, I'd be really happy to hear from them. Now, there's a challenge for listeners. Co-pilot Halligan claiming there might be something he isn't fully informed on. (laughs) So everybody rush in. It's a scam, isn't it? And, And it's increasing me, this net zero thing. It's reminding me of how we felt during COVID and the lockdown. Lord Frost, David Frost said to you that there's too much demonisation of those asking perfectly legitimate questions. If this is going to require the British people to find trillions of pounds we don't have and to make potentially huge sacrifices, there should be enormous, frank public debate about the timetable, about what's going on. But it's absolutely shut down. You watch any of the mainstream media, watch the BBC, watch ITV, they talk about it as though there's no argument. We absolutely have to do these things. And I think there should be. And we've got ourselves in this contorted, hypocritical position. So we've seen this week, haven't we, that the UK has done a deal with the states to import gas, which was fracked in the States, it's going to be transported 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to be used to relieve an energy crisis in our country, which still has a ban on fracking, in order what? That we can look virtuous, we can say, oh, we're not contributing to carbon emissions. That's absolutely ridiculous. It also puts us, our own people, our own working people, at a terrible disadvantage. So BMW announced in November last year, it's going to start making electric minis at a new plant in China. And China will make the electric minis, will get the money for the workers, and then the electric minis will be brought back here, where we can all be told that we're virtuous and green. Mm. It's just a scam, Liam. And using energy from China's numerous coal-fired power stations. (laughs) Exactly. It's just a green fairy tale, and I think it's increasingly a poisonous one. 
I must say, Alison, as well as recommending Dambisa Moyo's book on aid, I think all Planet Normal listeners should check out Fraser Nelson's excellent article, Bright Green, The Case for Eco-Optimism, yes. in, in The Spectator, okay, our sister publication, but still, it's full of really interesting facts about the progress the UK has made in terms of lowering carbon emissions, in terms of moving towards renewables. It's a sort of case for sanity rather than endless catastrophism surrounding this debate by somebody who, like me and you, clearly agrees that we need to move away from fossil fuels. And just to go back to David Frost for a moment, he and I discussed this notion that the sort of overturn window is now starting to shift because of very expensive energy, because of the sort of realities of the war in Ukraine. It's forcing, said Lord Frost, some realism into this debate. People can now say, hang about, maybe we need to slow this down. Hang about, maybe the economic costs need to be offset against the environmental costs and so on. And as David Frost says, we are now starting to see change in this debate, but the change is slow and it still worries me that certain opinions are still difficult to express. And he finished by saying, Alison, and I think this really should be the kind of motto of, of Planet Normal and all journalism, really. Free speech, free debate and the exchange of ideas is always the best way to get to the best solutions. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi, well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out. I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator from The Telegraph. And now on to our planet normal stowaway. The cost of living squeeze remains with us, with inflation still in double digits at 10.1%. But the price of basic foodstuffs is rising even faster than this headline inflation rate, with the price of vegetable oil up 65% during the year to September. Pasta 60% more expensive, the price of tea 45% up, and milk 30% dearer. Given that poorer households spend a much higher share of their incomes on food, inflation is higher at the lower end of the income scale. 
To discuss all things food-related, Planet Normal invited farmer extraordinaire Gareth Wynne-Jones onto the rocket. Born in the beautiful Carnathal Mountains in North Wales, Gareth has lived all his life at Tienhlivan, the windswept slopes where his family have farmed for hundreds of years. We farm on the Snowdonia mountain range, a part of Snowdonia, which is called the Carnathal. It's 27,000 acres of open mountain. It's the biggest open piece of land in England and Wales. Many, many farmers make a living off this area. It's a very sustainable and regenerative way of producing food. My family's been on this farm 375 years. That's when the records began in the parish. And if you come onto these mountains, you'll see some of the rarest flora and fauna, some beautiful wildlife, and um, it's all due to the way the mountains managed and the way that the ruminants from the ponies to the cattle to the sheep are grazing there in a sustainable and regenerative way. Tell us what conditions are like for farmers at the moment in the UK. It's obviously been a very tough time. There's been the war in Ukraine, a lot of pressure on our own domestic agriculture. What do you think the broader population needs to know about farming at the moment that they don't know, Gareth? Farming is under a lot of pressure. You know, producing food is under a lot of pressure. And we need food security in this country. Government needs to really address that as a policy. And I would think, you know, that policy would be the most important policy that you'll ever have. Because what people tend to forget that Tesco's or Asda's or M&S, they ain't producing that food. It's the people on the ground, the farmers. We need to really get that message over. I think as well, Liam, we need to be looking at regenerative agriculture. We need to be looking at seasonality. You know, when we're growing things within season, there's a lot less of a carbon footprint on it. And I think, you know, as society, do we need strawberries in December shipped from here, there and everywhere? Do we need green beans from Kenya flown into this country? That has to be a choice that these people are making. And everything we eat will have a cost. So it doesn't matter if you're vegetarian, pescatarian, everything that we will be producing will have a cost to something else. So for me, you know, I want to reconnect with the consumer, with the customer, and I want to show them what we can do in the UK, growing food, seasonality, sustainability, you know, environmentally friendly food. And I believe red meat is a big part of that, especially grass-fed, you know, beef and lamb. These are massive, massive protein producers. And a lot of this land is marginal land. This land cannot be farmed to produce crops or salads. It's produced ruminants and kept ruminants for years and years. And that's what we need to remember. And we need to get this story out to the public because I believe that farmers are part of the solution. And when you see the suicide rates within our industry, it's bloody scary. And I, I'm a, you know, quite a big public figure within the industry and, and social media. So I get a lot of messages of farmers. And sometimes I sit down with my wife and I talk about some of these messages that I'm sent. And I'll tell you, I'm in tears listening to some of these people, how frustrated, how much they're struggling. And it's not right. We should get a fair price for what we're producing. But when fertiliser prices, Liam, have gone up from £240 up to over £1,000 in a matter of, you know, 12 months. A tonne. Yeah. And we're talking about 
you know, fuel prices. So if I was buying red diesel a couple of years ago, I was getting it for 45 pence. It's a pound now. And same for my feed costs. We're very fortunate. We don't use a lot of fertilizer. We don't use a lot of feeds. But there's people that are, you know, heavily dependent on that. Half the world's food is produced with artificial fertilizer. We've we've heard lots about inflation, but the headline inflation statistic, 10.1% in September, it doesn't really capture what's happening with food, does it? We know that the price of milk in the shops is up 30, 35% over the last year. The price of pasta is up 60%. The price of cooking oil is up 65% year on year. To what extent are you seeing these cost pressures in the supply chain? You mentioned fertilizer and feedstock prices across the UK farming community. Is there any sign that these supply chain cost pressures are abating, Gareth? Not really, to be totally honest. Yeah, you know, fertilizer prices, you know, leveled off, but it's still massively expensive. And what people don't realize, okay, yeah, the milking boys are getting a little bit more. We've had a little bit more for our lamb and beef yet. The prices have been okay. But our cost of production has gone up as well. So if anything, we're not, you know, going forward. We're standing still or going back a little bit. So we're no better off financially than what we were five, ten years ago. So cheap food comes at a cost, in my opinion. The way this country's been, one third of the food we produce goes to waste. You know, supermarkets are two for the price of one. All these things have devalued what we're producing. And, you know, you'll see that with milk when they use milk as a lost leader to bring people into supermarkets. It's an amazing product. We need to be showcasing this. We're looking at these massive corporations now with their oat milks and their soya milks and whatever. Yeah, And this is saving the planet. Environmentalists say we need to stop all livestock production. Now, these are things that are going to make people hungry. And I am telling you now, this is a fact. This world is sleepwalking into food shortages if we're not careful. Because you can see what happened in the Ukraine. And Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. You know, the wheels came off there and the war, terrible thing. But it was a massive producer of grain. So when that came to rip, that doesn't give us, you know, alarm bells and starts to think, right, how can we be more secure in the food we're producing because at this point in time we're only producing 60 percent of the food and i think it might be a little bit less so we're only producing food till august if you put that into context from august onwards we'd go hungry without the food we're importing so we should be looking at ways where you know we've got technology we've got solar energy we could grow more of our own stuff you know, I've been growing tomatoes and I'm still picking them now in November. It's crazy. And I've got my own little polytunnel. You know, I'm, I'm planting potatoes earlier and putting them under wool. But these things can be, you know, put on a bigger scale. We can grow more of our own. It's a little bit like the Second World War, you know, when people had ration books. They dig for victory. And if we don't start securing our food, I think we will be in trouble. To what extent have you seen the government, farmers, regulatory authorities responding, reacting to the food security issues that have been laid bare by the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the blockage of a lot of staple products through the Black Sea? Have you seen any sense of urgency from the rule makers at all to help British farmers to enhance our food security? 
Not really, Liam. There's a couple of new schemes that are coming out towards growing horticultural stuff, you know, grants to put polytunnels up so people can, can grow more food on the farms. But but nothing systemic, no, no kind of sea change, no kind of break with previous thinking and putting us on a new trajectory so we're not importing so much food. No, and do you know why? Because them shelves are still full. And I think we've seen during the pandemic how important farmers were and, you know, people were going to their local butchers, local greengrocers, local fishmongers. They know where to get that food from. You know, supermarket chains, they did struggle with a lot of things during the pandemic. And I think if we can bring a lot of these food chains back to being more locally, that we're adding value to what we're producing as farmers as well, that we're selling directly and we're taking away the middleman. Because what I'm frightened of is we see the big, you know, multinational corporations coming in now with their fake foods, their fake meats, their fake juices or milks or whatever you want to call it. You know, they're, they're trying to cash in, you know, on other people's belief that they're going to save the planet by not eating livestock. And, and I totally disagree with it, you know, because if we can start showing people how regenerative these animals are from converting grass into meat, into protein and into milk, and into cheese and into your yogurts. There's so much different foods that we get from these animals, and they're an intricate part of the whole solution. And if you look into it, it's a carbon cycle. You know, they're eating, it's passing through them, and they're going back into the soil, which gives you the soil fertility. A lot of this cropland now is really struggling. It's struggling with its fertility. We need them livestock. We need that manure back in the soil, you know, to grow our crops for the future. So it is a cycle that we need to be pushing forward for people to understand how important what we are doing in this country is. And with a good temperate climate we have to grow grass, you know, it's a no-brainer that we should be utilising more of the food that we're producing. And I'm not saying go intensive and go crazy. No, be clever, you know, eat the right meats. You know, make sure that you know where your food comes from. Grow, eat, seasonal. It's it's massive and it tastes 10 times better. As a farmer, there's nothing, no better feeling than sitting down for a Sunday lunch knowing you've produced every single morsel on that table to feed your family and to feed other families. Three brief subject areas I want to touch on. The first is the farmers' relationships with supermarkets. It's often been contentious in the past, the sense that the big supermarkets push our small farmers around. Of course, it's difficult for farmers to talk about these very important commercial relationships. But do you see any improvement in general in terms of how supermarkets are treating our farmers? No, they're cutthroat. They're absolutely cutthroat. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, these people are just so scared that they're going to lose their contracts if they ever spoke out about it. So this guy had grown 20 acres of cauliflowers, and I think it was in the region of 70,000 quid it cost him to grow these cauliflowers. One of the big supermarkets came, and they said they weren't up to spec, and the next day he was going in with a flail, a machine to smash them all up, and he had to churn them back into, plow them back into the land. This is sometimes the stories that people don't hear. Now, when we've got food banks and food shortages, why the hell is things like this happening? even if the supermarket gave them some kind of compensation for it. But they don't. They've got the power. And that's the scary bit. What's happening is people will produce less and they will get scared. Is this the kind of thing that drives farmer suicides? Do you think the way farmers are treated by big supermarkets 
where there's a sense that farmers can't even speak out because they feel so beholden. Do you think that's partly the reason why suicides are so high among our farming community? I think, you know, the job is high pressured. The straw that breaks the camel's back, literally, isn't it? If you think about it, when there's pressures, financial pressures, the more paperwork that you have. And if you ever watch Clarkson's farm, you know, he just showed you how much paperwork farmers are doing just to be in exactly the same position as they were 50 or 100 years ago. But the suicide rate is three times the national average, Gareth. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah, it's it's scary. And it's not coming down. No, and, and I think there's some great charities out there. You know, I'm an ambassador for a couple of them and I try and help what I can. But the pressure is coming from governments. It's coming from supermarkets. And as well, there's a lot of pressure coming from, you know, the environmentalists. Let's talk about the sewage. You know, they're, they're blaming farmers for polluting the rivers. And when we know that these multinational companies, again, you know, these water companies are dumping sewage directly into our seas and rivers and farmers getting blamed for everything. Look, we're not the perfect industry. I'm not ever saying that. And we do have problems. But if we go back to what I said in the beginning, cheap food will come at a cost. And cheap food does come at a cost sometimes to the environment, to the animal, you know, and to the farmer. And we have to remember that. We've been outside the EU now, in theory, a couple of years. The transition period ended at the end of 2019, early 2020. Obviously, there's been lockdown since then. Does life feel different for you, a British farmer, outside the EU so far? Not really, to be honest with you. I voted Remain. You know, I've never said any difference. What I can tell you is land prices did really hike up during the pandemic, which is a good thing. We were very lucky to have a free trade deal with Europe, with our lamb. If otherwise, you know, there's 10 million sheep in Wales to begin with. Otherwise, I think we'd have been dead in the water as an industry. We still haven't had, you know, our own policies in Wales. Um, we've still had no changes, really. I think everything is quite stagnant. So I can't see any difference as a farmer, to be bluntly honest with you, except that little bit of a price hike in the beginning during the pandemic and lamb's still selling okay and so is beef i'd like to see you know policies that are out there to bring new blood into farming average age of farmers is about 65 which is bonkers we need new blood in the industry but when they look at the hours and what people get paid for it's a hard one we need to be looking at policies that are going to drive new blood into the industry, regenerative agriculture, new ways of producing things in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way. And, you know, if any country can do it, we can do it because we've got technology, we've got specialised people, you know, and we've got really bloody good farmers in this country that do a hell of a good job. We have to have as well a little bit of respect, you know, for each other. I think sometimes when we see some of the articles and, uh, you know, some of the environmentalists, so the, the way they just attack farmers is very, very disheartening. Finally, Gareth, this is the week of COP27, the summit in Egypt. How do you feel as a farmer watching the politicians, the world leaders, in quotes, glad-handing, flying in from all over the world, talking about the environment? Well, you just said that flying in from all over the world, yeah, telling other people what to eat and how to live does make me giggle, to be honest with you. I think these people are just so far removed from reality. When I sit in a little village here in Tlamavechan, I know that, you know, we're surrounded by food. 
and we've got people that need to go to a food bank. It's it's bloody scary, and it needs to be addressed. And some of these poor countries are really having a crisis. Sri Lanka, India. When you look at these governments and the policies they're setting up, they are trying to you know stranglehold the farming industry, produce less food which gives big multinational corporations opportunities to produce factory foods. We've heard some of the, these environmentalists, that, that's what they want. You know, they want protein coming from factories, from vats, from bacteria, from whatever. I totally disagree with that. You know, I, I want to see people eating healthily from the ground, from regenerative farming systems and eating, you know, really good meats that's produced properly and maybe eating less meat. You know, it's all up to the individual. But we cannot put our beliefs on others. We have to let them make an educated choice. But for me going forward, I want to showcase what we do in Britain. I want people to get behind British agriculture. Build a better Britain on our bellies and let's have a farming food revolution. We deserve it. We need to be producing more food to feed our nation in a sustainable, environmentally friendly and regenerative way. And don't forget, all that's got to be done affordably. Gareth Wynne-Jones, Hill Farmer Extraordinaire, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. No problem. Diane, Gareth, Diane. Absolutely marvellous interview with someone in a part of the world I know well, Liam. That's not how I said it. I think you've, you, your pronunciation is <laughs> a bit off there, Alison. <laughs> you can say Snowdonia, Halligan, with confidence. I can say Ivor the Engine. <laughs> I loved Ivor the Engine. We're going to make a cup of tea in Ivor's boiler. <laughs> where Gareth and the Wynne Jones family have been farming for 375 years, growing food for the nation. I mean, it is obviously it's incredibly majestic, can be bleak, but it's an extraordinary part of the country. And I felt he touched on so many powerful things, Liam, compared to the hot air and spurious nonsense being spoken by those global leaders at COP27 here we have a Welsh hill farmer talking about securing our own food. I had no idea that we only produced 60% of what we consume in food. So from August, Gareth says we'd go hungry if you know we weren't able to import. And given all the things that have been happening recently, Liam, that seems to me like something the country could really rally around. When we talk about carbon emissions, Gareth's working with livestock, perfect example of the virtuous circle of food, food being consumed, fertiliser, natural fertiliser, not being dependent on the fertiliser you've highlighted with rocketing costs in Ukraine. He paints a very powerful picture of a green message that I could certainly get behind of seasonality and sustainability. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read your thoughts. And if there are any women listening, I know you're very, very busy running the home and running the world, but please do email in because we get an awful lot from the chaps. And talking of which, we're starting with Alan. Dear Alison and Liam. When I first heard about the allegations against Gavin Williamson, I had two thoughts. 
The first was how I would dearly like to have been in the same room as Alison when she first heard the news. I could imagine you being highly expressive. Crikey. <laughs> he knows me so well. I was, says Alan. The second was, when and how did he become Sir Gavin? Surely this is madness. How on earth can he be granted this honour with his record and when he has been sacked twice from the cabinet and now resigned to avoid making it a hat trick? Words fail me. Perhaps he could go and join Hancock in the Australian jungle. Very good. Let them eat worms, Alan. Thank you both for continuing your excellent podcast. Please keep going. I think we are going to need it in the months ahead. He'll be lucky to get away with eating worms, Matt Hancock, won't he? He's going to be eating kangaroo bum and all kinds of things. And the, our, our beloved Daily Star, Alison, they're reporting on their front page that actually Matt Hancock is scared of snakes. So he's going into the jungle and he's going to have to sort of lay down in coffins with lids on full of snakes and beetles and he's actually scared. I thought they were his close relations. So actually, this is a slightly more serious note, is that one of the other contestants in the jungle is a lovely woman who's on the Loose Women show. And I think I believe that her father or one of her close relations died during the lockdown and, and they were unable to go and see him. So I expect she'll have a few choice words, a co-pilot, to say to the former health secretary. Coco Hancock, as the star are calling him. <laughs> under the headline, Fears of the Clown. <laughs> this is from Catherine. Hello, co-pilots. And this is on a more serious note. A few weeks ago, a distressed father wrote into Planet Normal about his daughter, who, with the, quote, support of her school and that awful sect mermaids, was starting the process of transitioning. The father's story was a shocking one, though sadly, far from unique. It makes me so angry and so upset, says Catherine, that children as young as 15 can start hormone blockers before they're trusted to get a body piercing and before even the legal age of consent. And by the age of 16, before they can vote, get a tattoo, drink alcohol or buy a Pritt stick, who knew, they can have an irreversible sex change operation. It's an abomination. The same confused teenager exists for a reason. I'm yet to meet anyone who looks back on their teenage years and thinks they got every decision right. For most, it's very confusing to navigate those great hormonal changes and to try to find their place in the world. This is only made worse by the influence that social media now wields. So at a time when we're incredibly impressionable, eager to be accepted socially, highly susceptible to manipulation and surging full of hormones, teenagers are being exposed to a dangerous content online and groupthink that tells them that gender is a choice and can be changed. In fact, such change is often very actively encouraged. I suspect in the future... There'll be enough horror stories from poor children who regret transitioning that there'll be a backlash. But in the meantime, teenagers like the daughter of your listener are the guinea pigs. It's absolutely criminal. All your Planet Normal episodes leave me shouting at my phone. In agreement, of course. I thought Professor Arif Ahmed spoke informatively and eloquently on the issue of free speech and censorship. That was last week, of course. Finally, a little anecdote from my own family life. I picked up an empty box of chocolates and said to my husband... Where have they all gone? I only had one. He looked at me defensively. There were hardly any in there, he said. It's called shrinkflation. <laughs> Thank you, co-pilots, for helping to keep all of us sane in this increasingly insane world. Best wishes, Catherine. Great, Catherine. I've got an absolute flood of furious emails on the subject of COP27 and the climate reparations 
Mike says the definition of foreign aid is poor people in rich countries donating to rich people in poor countries. Just say no. Roger says Great Britain is viewed in the third world as no more than a convenient piñata. And Jamie says, how much do we get for inventing cricket? Very, very good question, Jamie. And this is from Nick. I thought this was genuinely interesting. Not his real name, Liam. A week ago, I returned from a 10-day tour of Egypt, starting and ending in Cairo. I've been to Egypt before, but it is even more disgusting and festering heat than it was already. Cairo is horizon to horizon sea of new concrete apartment blocks, most unfinished, and surrounded by swathes of rubble and rubbish. Not a drop of water is drunk that hasn't been brought in a plastic bottle. No effort has been made to create a reliable public water supply. Filthy, polluted canals line the streets in country towns. The bottles, along with cans and plastic bags, festoon every gutter, every pavement and, incredibly, every archaeological site. The ground is half made up of plastic debris. Every tomb and temple is littered with them. Not a finger is lifted to pick up the rubbish. There isn't the faintest hint of electric vehicles anywhere. The idea that we in the UK would pour hundreds of millions into this as reparations is beyond bizarre. It's an extraordinary racket designed to fund their corruption and indifference into which our money will disappear. Back in 1983, I met an elderly Egyptian in Cairo who put me up. He had been educated in England in the early 1900s. He told me about the British infrastructure installed in Egypt of canals and roads and other facilities which had all fallen into rack and ruin after the British left. He could hardly bear it. Meanwhile, my neighbour's daughter, a COP27 administrator, flew out to Egypt on Saturday with her whole team, business class, Natch. Thanks for that, Nick. Alison, we often talk about Scooby-Doo, don't we? <laughs> and Velma, because that, of course, is your name with your little glasses yes. and your newfound powers analysing the economy. <laughs> now you know that there's something called Excel spreadsheets and you can tweak your models and so on. This is from Deborah. At last, recognition for you, Alison and Velma, as the style icons that you are. Keep normalising. And Deborah sent us a clip from another Sunday newspaper that we're not allowed to name. Why fashion loves Scooby-Doo's Velma geek chic mini. Because, of course, Velma, along with her famous orange roll neck jumper and her little red sandals, also wore a red mini skirt with her pull-up orange socks. Scooby-Doo's resident nerd Velma, says the newspaper article, has always been a wonky style icon. The NHS glasses, the oversized jumper, the bowl haircut. Now her pleated geek chic mini is autumn's most wanted. And the article talks about Velma minis being spotted on various catwalks. And in that vein, Alison, Bob the poet has struck again because Bob has weighed in with Velma's got your number with apologies to Mary Shelley, the perfect <laughs> curtain raiser in true Planet Normal, serious but humorous style ahead of the autumn statement next Thursday, which is going to be such a bundle of joy. And here we go. In his castle's secret laboratory, Dr. Halligan's horrified. His creation known as Velma has managed to get outside. He'd waved her electric blankets to coax her back indoors, but she bounded off in search of stats and <laughs> fled across the moors. She craves and crunches data, all the figures she can find, ten-year gilts and the price of gas are permanently on her mind. She ferrets out financial facts and processes the lot, and she's heading now for the treasury, 
to devour everything they've got. So, Chancellor, prepare yourself. There's no escape in sight. Velma's got your number. Make sure your sons are right. Oh. A total triumph. We've had quite a few poetic offerings this week. It's this time next week, isn't it, Liam, the autumn statement? That's right. It's Thursday the 17th of November. Can I just say, a real bugbear of mine this week, every day some leak of some forthcoming horror, pensions to be raided, upper rate to go up to 50%. Don't you find it? It's demoralising people. It really is bad, I think. It's crazy because what government spin doctors are doing, thinking that they're all so clever, they keep putting out these tales of woe. We're going to you know, whack taxes up. Well, so that when taxes go up by a bit less, people think, oh, we got off quite lightly and aren't the government nice to us? No other country spins their financial statements to this extent beforehand. All these leaks that are splattered over the front of newspapers because they're leaks, because they're exclusive, they seriously dent business sentiment. You know, board meetings will be convened to cancel that investment, to cancel that new factory, to not hire those workers. This stuff has real world implications. It's not just a sort of PR parlour game. And we look as if we're not a serious country if we're running ourselves in this way, playing fast and loose with statements about incredibly important aspects of public policy, just so you can get a sort of slightly better feeling of PR on the day. I think it's incredibly debilitating. I'd hoped under Rishi Sunak there'd be a lot less of it, but there seems to be more. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week. It's Alison's turn. I think we'll give it to Catherine, shall we? Indeed. A fabulous email from Catherine. So, Catherine, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with your postal address and put in the subject heading of the email, mug winner. If you enjoy Planet Normal and we strain everything you to make sure that you do please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify there's some lovely collection of nice things not all written by extended members of liam's family it does help others to find the podcast and it also cheers the co-pilots up no end in these dire times it certainly does and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the manners of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Thank <laughs> <laughs> <Then> you, start. <laughs>